take my mic back now. <laughs> Joshua 22 is where we'll be at tonight. It's a great song. I love that song. Joshua 22. Have you ever had a uh, misunderstanding where you were truly misunderstood? Not like you caused it to happen, but like where you truly were misunderstood. I have. I was in college, and uh, back in the day, you could find me most days in a place called the field house at school. The field house was where all the ballers were at, okay? I was a baller. <laughs> That's where I was at. That's where you could find me. Now, connected to the... Why is everybody laughing? <laughs> connected to the field house was this gym where all the gym rats were at. I was not a gym rat. I was a baller. So after class, Ashley, she's back there with, with, with my 18 kids. Uh, <laughs> Ashley was the study person. She was, she's going to class, and she's like disappearing into her dorm room going to study. You want to go, go get something to eat? No, I got to study. We're going to supper? No, I got to study. You want to go meet, meet for breakfast? Yeah, okay. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to study. That's what Ashley did. I was in the field house. So this particular day, I was in the field house. I was walking in. I had my, 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 my shoes. And so I'm walking in, and there's a ball right there. So I just walked up and casually just put up this half-court shot. Turned around. I knew it wasn't going to go in. Turned around, just kept walking. I heard it hit the rim, and I turned around just in time to see it hit the most jacked guy in that whole gym. I'm talking like slow motion, like the drool's coming out of his mouth when it hits him. His name was Sobe, Sobe Freeman. And I thought, I saw him get, he was mad. He was real mad. He was mad, mad. That ball hits him in the face, and he comes down out of the bleachers toward me, walking up on me. And I thought to myself, Sobe's about to punch his ticket to the gun show. <laughs> this is about to happen. And just before Sobe met his demise, somebody stepped in and said, man, that wasn't Matt's ball that hit you in the mouth. And I didn't realize that it wasn't mine that hit him. Real thankful for it, but <laughs> it wasn't my basketball that hit him in the mouth. And so... Because of that, me and Sobe started laughing it up, and we eventually became good friends. So I was, that was a misunderstanding on both parties. Now, to my discredit, I have been the cause of misunderstanding, too. I was in college. College is hard, y'all. No, actually, I was, this is when I was working, working for the college. I was in an office um, like desk clump with three desks in the same office. And it was me and my former roommate, Dean, and this guy named Anthony. Now, Anthony knew how to push all the buttons, every last one of them. He can get on a man's nerves real quick. And I was, I was, I was, you 23, 24? I forget. I was one of those ages, just fresh out of college. And Anthony was getting on my nerves. So I texted my dude, Dean, right in front of me. And I said, Anthony is being a moron. Three seconds later, Anthony turns around. 
and says, hey, Matt, why'd you text that to me? I had texted Anthony instead of Dean because I was thinking the name Anthony in my head. I texted it to Anthony. So what do, you, what do you do in that moment? You're being a moron, dude. So I just had to like double down on it and say, you're being, you're being an idiot. And so I was the cause of the misunderstanding at that time. This is part of what we're going to talk about tonight in Joshua 22. Where, where's, my, where's my 90s kids at? Raise your hand. You're, maybe you were born in the 80s, but you grew up in the 90s. Okay, this is going to be an interactive portion. Okay, give me some, uh, give me some of your 90s shows that you watched. I'll go first. I'll say uh, Home Improvement. So we're on that line. Somebody shout out some shows. Saved by the Bell. Somebody else. Boy Meets World. Gosh, I hate that show. Um, all right. Family Matters. There's one. How about this one, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Who can rap that whole song? <laughs> Ashley can. She knows every lyric. She don't know lyrics to any songs. But she knows, now this is the story all about how She knows the whole thing. All right, what's the common theme in those shows? The common theme in those family sitcoms was that there was this personal conflict in every episode. Somebody, something went down every episode. But at the end of the episode, everybody made up, everybody was hugging, everybody was drinking tea, the camera's panning out, everybody's at the piano playing music, singing whatever, and then that's the end of the episode. But then you had this other show, Roseanne. <laughs> if I remember that show. Everybody... In the 90s family sitcoms, everybody made up. Roseanne, you could hate everybody for a whole season. They, they were, there was just always like this conflict, and they never got over it. They just like get on each other's nerves, and it was real and raw. And uh, these people, just, they just hated each other sometimes. There's two different outcomes in play here in these types of shows. And uh, especially with interpersonal conflict, there are two outcomes that can happen. And in our study tonight, we're going to see... Uh, in Joshua 22, how a civil war almost got started and how it got resolved. Uh, let's start in Joshua 22. Let's start in verse 1. It's a long chapter. We're not going to read everything. Uh, let's just read down through verse 6. Then Joshua called the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said unto them, Ye have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. Ye have not left your brethren these many days unto this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God hath given rest unto your brethren as he promised them. Therefore now return ye and get you unto your tents and unto the land of your possession, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side of Jordan. But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, and to cleave unto him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went unto their tents. Let's pray real quick. Lord, thank you so much for this night. Thank you for the worship, Lord, despite the weather. Uh, thank you for... Uh, not letting many distractions happen uh, with the power. Um, Lord, I pray that you would just help me as we try to explain this text and apply this text and as we learn how to maintain unity throughout our dealings with each other. Lord, we're humans. We mess up. Conflicts happen. Uh, 
But Lord, your commandment is for us to have a centralized focus on you. Help us as we open your word. Lord, um, give me the words to say. Give me the wisdom that I need. Lord, I need your help as we teach through this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So verse 1 here, he's got, there's two and a half tribes. Remember, there are 12 tribes of Israel. You have, I don't know why there's half a tribe right here, but there is. You have two and a half tribes, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. And in verses 2 and 3, he tells them, you have kept the charge of the Lord your God. What he's telling these guys, these two and a half tribes, they had already inherited the land. They had already been divided up in the land. We've already talked through this and taught through this over the last few months. This land has already been divided. These two and a half tribes came back to help the other tribes secure the land that they were going to be given. So this whole conquest of the land of Canaan was seven plus years. Think of this as a second deployment for these tribes. And so Joshua, they're, they're finishing up, and Joshua is, uh, is telling, you know how like the end of a movie, uh, it's like all the, you know, the, 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 the nice music, and everybody is, is happy. This is what Joshua's doing. Joshua's giving them one final charge of en- an encouragement. He's telling the people of God have acted like the people of God. They have acted in obedience. They've gone out to help their other brethren, even though their lands are already inherited. They, they obviously, in the book of Joshua, we know that they didn't follow flawlessly, but they followed obediently. And uh, it's, it's important to note here that their obedience did not uh, produce a relationship with God. Their obedience proved a relationship with God. And it's the same in our lives. We do not have a works-based salvation. Amen? We don't have it. We couldn't earn it if we wanted to. We do not produce a relationship with God with our works, but it shows our relationship with God. One preacher called it this, a long obedience in the same direction. And this is a, it's a, it's a picture of real discipleship, real growth in our lives manifests itself through continued obedience. That verse in James comes to mind where it says we are not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. Verses 5 and 6, he tells them to take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law. Joshua was encouraging them to continue this obedience. And it didn't need to occur just in the time of battle when they had that time together or just in time of victory when they were claiming the land. It needed to continue as they brought that attitude and that posture of obedience following God back to their families and their lands. Listen to this list that he tells them. To love the Lord, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments, to cleave unto Him, to serve Him with all your heart. This was going to be, this is kind of the, not necessarily the swan song, but this is kind of the final encouragement before he sends them back out to their lands. So this was the theme that's going to be ringing in their ears all the way back to where they were going on the other side of the Jordan River into their new lands. And, and parents, uh, uh, some of you have sent kids off to college. Some of you have uh, sent, sent kids to, back to school now, and you had that, maybe you had that night before school starts conversation, like especially little kids. I remember when Bella went into kindergarten, I sat her down with Bennett, and Bennett was like three, and I said, Bella, I want you to be good tomorrow at school, your first day at school. Immediate laughter in my face. (laughs) Did not register with her. But some of you have sent kids off to college, and they've driven out in that driveway, and you've had a different conversation with them. You've given them kind of that one charge before they leave you for that semester. This is what Joshua is doing here. 
He's saying that your military obligations are over, but your spiritual obligations are just getting started. He's saying the Lord wants your continued obedience, but more importantly, he wanted their willful obedience. I've heard it described this way. There's a difference between obedience and compliance. We've heard that. I'm sick of that word compliance over the last few years. But there's a difference between obedience and compliance. There's a couple of different spirit, uh, scriptural examples. Uh, one example is, is Jonah. Jonah complied with God. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. But what did he do? He runs and he finally ends up with this encounter with the whale. Ends back up on the, on the beach. And then he finally goes to Nineveh. But uh, the word of God goes forth, but in his heart, he was not willfully obedient in what he was doing in his heart. He complied, but he wasn't truly obedient. Compare Jonah with Jacob. Think of the story of Jacob. Jacob works for Laban uh, like a dog for seven years in exchange for his daughter Rachel uh, to be his wife. But the Bible says, uh, it talks about Jacob's attitude here. It says those seven years seemed like a day to him. Because of the love he had for her. We all know what happened in that story. Um, He did all that. He works for seven years. And then Leah was given to to him instead. Remember what they said about Leah. She she had the nice personality. Um, Not really what Jacob was looking for, right? He wanted Rachel. He ended up working seven more years for Rachel. Uh, But what was the motive? What's the difference between those two right now? Love was the motivation. It said the seven years seemed like a day to him. Jonah, it takes a whale barfing him up to get him to go to do what God had told him to do. There's a difference in the obedience and the compliance. This is what Joshua is explaining to these tribes as they leave. He's encouraging them, saying, "You're going to go way out of the way to your new homeland." Um, look, at, I had to look this on the look at this on the map. The way that they were traveling, these two and a half tribes were going to be separated far away from the other tribes once they. Uh, it got to their land. It was across the Jordan River, and it wasn't like they just had all these boats. This is not just your normal river. This is going to be uh, very difficult to pass over this Jordan River. And once they go back, once they get over there, they weren't going to be back a whole lot. So this is, he said, you're going to go out of the way to your new homeland where nobody's going to be watching you. So he's encouraging them to obey the Lord out of love in their heart. This is why love was stated first and then walk, and then obey, and then cleave and serve. Let's look down at verse 7 and 8. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possession in in Bashan, but unto the other half therefore gave Joshua among their brethren on this side Jordan westward. And Joshua sent them away unto their tents, and he blessed them. And he spake unto them, saying, Return with much riches. But he goes, go down to the bottom of verse 8. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. There was a great reward that God had given them for their obedience. And part of that was great riches. Uh, but why is he telling them to divide the spoils? I had to look this up and study this out a little bit. Um, the armies of these tribes had sacrificed much to claim these lands. They had been gone for their families for seven years, sometimes more than that. They had risked everything to obey the Lord and follow Joshua. They had put their lives on the line, being willing to die for the cause. But not only did those armies sacrifice a lot, those families had sacrificed a lot. And Joshua was telling them, divide it with those people who stayed behind to hold the fort down, to hold the villages down, to hold the businesses down. Um, there was a sacrifice of watching your 
watching your loved one leave, maybe never to return, that they didn't think about. There's the sacrifice of the loss of business, of family units because of the war. Joshua's telling them to share the spoils. This, this concept is taught once again in, uh, later on in 1 Samuel 30 when David conquers Ziklag. Uh, the Israelites had lived in it and the Amalekites had attacked it and stole the spoils from Israel. David chases them down and gets the stuff back, but some of the people who had fought for David did not want to give up those spoils. They were getting greedy with it. And David says the sacrifice was just as great for those families who carried on as it was for the people who fought in battle. Let's go to verse 9 and 10. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel out of Shiloh, which is the land of Canaan, to go into the country of Gilead to their possession. Verse 10, And when they came into the borders of Jordan that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben and of Gad and half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by Jordan and a great altar to see to. They came to that boundary, the Jordan River, and they built this huge altar and the, 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 the language here says uh, a great altar to see too. It means that you could see it from afar off. Why did they do this? Why did they build an altar? They weren't sanctioned to build the altar. What, it probably, I was talking to Steve about this before church. Um, it, it probably wasn't the smartest idea for these guys to just go building, their, building an altar. You didn't just do that back then. But maybe they were thinking as they were about to split up, they were thinking that the other ten tribes were going to forget about them as they crossed this boundary. Similar to, um, they, they wanted to build it, as you'll see it later, as a witness, something to remember and you remember back in Joshua earlier in this chapters, the stones of remembrance, that's what that was for. They were doing something similar, but it wasn't going to be perceived that way by everyone else. Um, verse 11, the children of Israel heard say, what does that mean? It means they heard gossip. They heard, they heard someone telling about it. They heard say, Behold, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and of the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar over against the land of Canaan in the borders of Jordan at the passage of the children of Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against them. The children of Israel were mad. They were ticked about this. They prepared for war. They were ready to, squ to square up. They thought they were doing the holy thing by preparing for war. That's what they've been commanded to do. That's what they've been doing. The whole book of Joshua was taking out these pagan uh, villages that did not worship God. And they thought they were doing what they were just had been doing for the last seven years. And so their whole reaction, the problem with this is the whole reaction was based on hearsay. Verse 13. Let's see what they do. And the children of Israel sent into the children of Reuben, into the children of Gad, into the half-tribe of Manasseh, into the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the priest, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten princes of each a chief house of prince throughout all the tribes of Israel, and each one was a head of the house with their fathers among the thousands of Israel. Somehow, <clears throat> it doesn't tell us, but somehow some cooler heads prevail. And instead of going straight into there with swords drawn, they send, the, the children of Israel send Phineas to confront them. And then Phineas brings some leadership there with him. Verse 16, this is what he says to him. Thus saith the whole congregation of the Lord, 
What trespass is this that ye have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord and that ye have builded you an altar that ye might rebel this day against the Lord? Phineas is there to, to gather facts before anything crazy happens. But he, the problem is he's operating on assumption right now. And he speaks up and says, Thus says the whole congregation of Israel. Again, this is based on hearsay, verse 11. And he's being accusative of sin right now. He's assuming the worst. Um, I was listening to a sermon uh, on this chapter, and, and the pastor said this, Assumption is the lowest form of communication. What, what wisdom in that? Assumption is the lowest form of communication. Phineas is righteous in his effort to maintain holiness, but he's acting on the wrong assumption rather than fact. That word trespass, it's, uh, it's, it's translated in Hebrew, ma'al. Uh, which is translated treachery, but in the, later the Greeks translated it to mean a false note in music or discord in harmony. That's going to uh, mean something a little bit later on to us. But Phineas here is doing his due diligence in investigating, and he's following the instructions that were found in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 13, 12 through 14 tells us this, If thou shalt hear, say in one of thy cities, which the Lord thy God hath given thee to dwell there, saying, Certain men, the children of Belial, are gone out among you and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city. Let us go and serve other gods which ye have not known. Then shalt thou inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be truth and the thing certain that such abomination is wrought among you, then thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, destroying it utterly and all that is therein and the cattle thereof and the edge of the sword." God took idolatry very seriously. But he also had a plan put in place so that they could find out the truth. Verse 17, Phineas is continuing. Is the iniquity of Peor too little for us from which they were not cleansed into this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord? This goes back to Numbers 25. The Israelites uh, were being immoral with the Moabites and it caused a plague to come on the children of Israel. 24,000 people died because of this. And Phineas, the priest, comes up and discovers this, and he stabs two people through with a javelin. Phineas, and verse, let's go down to verse 19. Phineas is encouraging them here. Notwithstanding, he's giving them a chance. If the land of your possession be unclean, then pass ye over into the land of the possession of the Lord, wherein the Lord's tabernacle dwelleth, and take possession among us. Phineas is encouraging, encouraging them to come back to the east side um, where the Lord's tabernacle was. This would have been a great cost to them because they would have lost land, they would have lost uh, space and loss of inheritance, but it was worth it to him as long as he could prevent them from violating God's law. He was willing to sacrifice. Verse 20, did not Achan the son of Zerah commit a trespass in the accursed thing? He's reminding them of Achan's sin. We talked through that uh, a few weeks ago about the consequences of Achan's sin. It wasn't just him. It had ripple effects. They were taking sin very seriously. Again, they're doing the right thing the wrong way. Many had to die because of this person's sin. He reminds them that, once again, that God took idolatry very, very seriously. Then verse 21, the, the other tribes respond here. 
Then the children of Israel, uh, of, of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said unto the heads of the thousands of Israel, The Lord God of gods and the Lord God of gods, he knoweth, and Israel shall he know. If it be in rebellion or if in transgression against the Lord, save us not this day. They're calling on the name of God. They're using three different Hebrew names uh, for the Lord. They're invoking him into this conversation. They're saying God himself knows our hearts. They are bringing his name into the mix. And they're saying if, he ha- if we have sinned, let God judge us. In verse 23, they keep explaining themselves that we have built us an altar to turn from the following of the Lord or if it to offer their own burnt offering or meat offering or to the peace offerings, let the Lord himself require it. And if we have not rather done it for fear of this thing, saying in time to come to your children might speak unto our children, saying, what have ye to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us and you. Ye children of Reuben and children of Gad have no part of the Lord. So shall your children make our children cease from fearing the Lord. They were afraid that because of the distance that was going to be separated by them, that the other tribes were going to look at them and say, they're not really part of us. So they're operating out of fear. But They build this altar. And we're going to see this. The, the, the purpose of them building this altar was for unity. They wanted to make sure that everybody, and especially the generations going forward, their children, their grandchildren, and their grandchildren, knew that they were all one family united under God. There's unity of faith and there's unity of fellowship here. And it was a symbol. It was going to be a witness of the unity between them. They were horrified at the thought that they could be a rebellious tribe. It's a good lesson here for us that we should be horrified by our sin. The horrified, horrified at the thought of us sinning. Verse 27, that continues, but that it may be a witness between us and you and our generations after us that we might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings that your children may not say to our children in the time to come, ye have no part in the Lord. Let's skip down to verse uh, 32. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the princes returned from the children of Reuben and of Gad and out of the, and, and the land of the Canaan and to the children of Israel and brought them word again. And the thing pleased the children of Israel and the children of Israel blessed God and did not intend to go up against them in battle to destroy the land wherein the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. And the children of Reuben and, and the children of Gad called the altar Ed for it shall be a witness between us that the Lord is God. Instead of preparing for war, they find out they're actually in agreement. They say, and instead of preparing for war, they start praising the Lord together. They called the altar witness. This was to show the unity of them all under the same God, Jehovah. But remember, all of this conflict was because somebody gossiped. Let this be a reminder for us. We need to be careful about what we say, how we say it, and why we say it. But the, the points that I want to talk about really quickly as we get ready to, to, to close, but um, how do we deal with our brothers and sisters and maintain unity? How do we deal with people? We're, we're, we're humans. We're going to have conflict, aren't we? Some of you, I mean, some of y'all are going home to conflict tonight. I could see it in your face. Um, some of you have conflict tomorrow at work that you know you're going to have. 
Some of you have conflict in this room. How do you have conflict remaining different but in unity? Number one. Number one. Exhort them to continue following the Lord. Joshua uh, early in this chapter, is setting the example for this. Joshua's leadership, he was a general, a warrior, but he was a strong leader who pointed others to follow God. The tribes may have acted unwise in building this altar, but their heart's intention was exposed when they were confronted on it. If we want to have unity with our family, and especially with our church family, we must encourage each other to follow the Lord. How do we encourage that? Look at Joshua's example. We encourage it by example. Uh, his service and example spoke for itself. It was his testimony. We encourage it by exhortation. Verse 5, he tells them to take diligent heed to the commandment of the Lord. We, and we encourage it by emulation. Love was the motivation, not heresy. It couldn't be love without hearing, and it couldn't be obeying before loving, because that would have been uh, heresy and legalism. But they saw it in Joshua. They must see it in us. Joshua's encouragement to them was before this whole instance happened, but it was already being displayed to these tribes. Number one, encourage them to continue following God. Number two, how do we maintain unity? We search for the truth from a spirit of love and humility. Instead of going straight into battle, they contact Phineas. And some, uh, and they, Phineas brings some experienced, trusted men to investigate the matter further. This goes back to that Deuteronomy 12 principle. Phineas reminds them of the past consequences here of idolatry. And idolatry is putting anything before God's commandments. He gives them two examples there. His job was to warn them of this and to find out what was going on. Um, but Phineas goes even to, so far as, the, again, in verse 19, to offer up his land if it means they'll come back and be pure before the Lord. Uh, but there was a healthy conflict here. But Phineas was determined to find out the truth. He was willing to take the time to investigate and to ask questions. There was, an, there was a healthy conflict, but there was an unhealthy act. The healthy conflict was he's striving for holiness and striving to get Israel to follow God. But the unhealthy act, again, is operating on the wrong assumptions. Verse 11, hearsay. Gossip. What's the application here? The interpersonal conflict is going to happen. We're human. We make mistakes. We get on each other's nerves, especially the more that we're around each other. Uh, but God, and God has created us differently, uh, and that's to be honored and celebrated. But in dealing with one another, especially with a brother and sister in Christ, especially if there's fault or offense, we cannot simply assume the worst. We should seek to listen first. What does this look like practically? Uh, have you ever jumped to a conclusion and overreacted? Yeah, me neither. It's a lot, it got real quiet when I asked that. Uh, it happens mostly, honestly, with the people that we love the most, right? Um, our spouses, our kids, our loved ones. The Israelites here were establishing their territories for the next generations. And in an effort to do right, there was simply a human mistake. The application here is we need to listen to hear, not to respond. Think about it. You, you, you fight with your spouse and... Um, so often we hear just enough of what we want to hear in order to begin to respond instead of listening to the rest of what they have to say. Phineas came in with the right intentions and the wrong assumptions, but he was willing to hear the other side of the story. Again, that quote, assumption is the lowest form of communication. 
It goes back to that principle. We go to the person if you have a problem. Go to the person. Talk to them about it. If it's anything, if it's something, uh, if it's nothing, it's, if it's a misunderstanding, you can just go on together. But if it is something, you can talk to them about it and correct it. If it's something to be corrected, and then you can be right with each other and be right with the Lord. It doesn't and it shouldn't be done in the wrong spirit. We must be gentle in our approach. Um, you can figure it. You don't have to wash feet. And anybody, nobody washing my feet. That's gross. But you can figuratively wash feet, can't you? You can take a servant's posture and listen and correct. But too often, when we figuratively wash feet, we wash feet with scalding hot water, don't we? We want to hurt them a little bit still. Um, we walk around like Phineas did with the javelin. But in this case, he seeks out to listen because he wants to find the truth. Proverbs 15.1 tells us this, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Number two, search for truth from a spirit of love and humility. And finally, number three tonight, when the matter is resolved, it should lead to praise and worship. Verse 33, they blessed God. They put the matter to bed and then they went on. They did not, it says they did not intend to go up against them in battle to destroy the land. What became of this situation? Unity was restored and they marked that day. Both parties resolved that it was all about Jesus and our lives are no different. Don't let anything get in the way of, of remembering that first. Solving misunderstandings together involves communication, humility, and trust. But resolving misunderstandings is a cause for praise. When the matter is done, leave it there and move on. Move forward for the gospel together. Uh, I'm reminded of that verse, Psalm 133, verse 1. Uh, it's, on, it's on the screen. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in what? Unity. Why is unity important? Unity exhorts one another. Again, before this ever happened, there was unity amongst the Israelite army. They were fighting together. They were already unified. Unity is a key to powerful worship. Unity locks the hands of the church with one another in one singular focus. Unity searches for truth rather than acting on only assumption. Now, church, now more than ever. Euphola Baptist Church needs unity. I've seen it clearly in our church the last little bit. People who don't normally hang out together or speak to each other that much, I've seen them talking. They're, uh, I've seen them pray with one another when we had those Sunday night prayer meetings. They were worshiping together. Ephesians 4.3 tells us this, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. They were striving for unity, not uniformity. We don't have to be twins to be brothers. But they had a centralized love for Jesus. They kept their eyes on God together. Spur see, uh, Charles Spurgeon said this, Divisions in churches never begin with those full of love for the Savior. If we keep our focus where it needs to be, unity is a byproduct of that. What's the point here? Both parties were so concerned about unity that they actively sought out to understand one another in a spirit of holiness and a striving for righteousness so much so that they both pointed toward God as their centralized pursuit. And it resulted in them 
going in the same direction together, even though they were headed different ways geographically. Striving for unity brought peace instead of war. Think about what could have happened if they had not resolved this. Think, think, think about how your Bible would have changed. What if that had happened? There's just now stability to the region. Uh, they've spent the last seven years cleansing the temple, I mean, cleansing the, the land of evil and corruption, only to die by their own swords over a misunderstanding because of, of hearsay. Think about how that would have changed the history of Israel. F.B. Meyer says this, The nearer we get to Christ, and that quote's up there, you might not be able to read it, it's a lot of print. The nearer we get to Christ, the more clearly we discern our unity with all those who belong to Him. We learn to think less of points of divergence and more about those of agreement. We find that the idiosyncrasies by which each believer is fitted for his specific work do not materially affect those depths of the inner life in which all saints put on the nature of the living Savior. As the scattered sheep browse their way up towards a common summit, they converge on each other, and there is one flock, and there is one shepherd. We, as you follow Baptist Church, are the body of Christ. Satan looks at this church, and he'd love nothing more than to divide it any way that he possibly can. What are you willing to do to stay in unity together? Are you willing to put some differences aside? Pastor Colin preached a couple weeks ago about how much we need in our community, and we do. Our community of believers, you need the church. The truth is that conflict is going to happen, but how we handle the conflict is going to be an indicator of your maturity in Christ. We need to unify together for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of our church. Why is that? Look at the little kids in here. Think about the next generations that are coming ahead. There's an example um, about, a, about five fingers versus a fist. I'm not going to hurt you much unless I poke you in the eye. But if I punch you, it packs a punch, right? We're in a fight together. We're in spiritual warfare. It's time we unify together, church. The Israelites stayed in unity because of who they were following. We need to do the exact same thing. Pastor Coleman, come on. Matt, thank you so much for the thought tonight. That's a timely thought.